It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I begin to dream in German. And they always say once you dream in a language, then you're, you're sort of making quite a lot of progress in terms of uh, having that language as part of you. But football was always part of it as well. Welcome in to episode two of The Heart of the Game, the show where we get to know the folks who make up the fabric of football. I'm your host, Nate Abaurea. Get at me on Twitter and Instagram, at Nate Abaurea, and be sure to follow at World Soccer Talk. In this edition of the show, we're joined by a man who was a great mentor to me growing up, and a man who has long been a prominent and well-respected commentary voice of the beautiful game, my good friend Derek Ray. We talked air travel with Derek Ray. We talked about the art of the freelance hustle as a soccer commentator. We talked French food and Euro pop. We also talked a lot about Germany, German football, and Derek's love for the German language. We talked about the importance of proper name pronunciation and cultural understanding, and we talked about the meaning of football romanticism. So without further ado, on with the show. Derek Ray, how are you, sir? I'm very well, mate. How are you? I'm doing well. Speaking to you from uh, here on the U.S.-Mexico border in San Diego, California. Where does the uh, world find you? today as we uh, as we speak i'm thankfully at home and i'm not always able to say that but home is the boston area just north of boston on the coast here in massachusetts now something that a lot of people have asked uh, about you over the last few years and even going back a, a decade or more on average how many annual air miles do you do you rack up, Derek? I feel like you fly more than any football commentator that I've ever known. <laughs> I probably do nowadays, yeah, since moving back to the USA from the UK in 2017. That is certainly the case. I don't really count the miles, but I suppose I should. And I'm just estimating this, but I, I guess it's probably 100,000 a year. <laughs> oh man, um, the the hundred thousand a year uh, estimation there. 
of the uh, the miles annually. Much of that is is due to, as you said, you're moving back to the Boston area and continuing to work all around Europe. And much of it is working freelance, the the, the quintessential freelance hustle, which is such a cool thing for a man of of your experience and, and career level that that's still the foundation of of what you do. And I know you and I have have talked off the air uh, quite a bit about this, and I just wanted to share this uh, with the listeners right now. What would you, Derek, say are, are the greatest benefits of the freelance career that, that you're living right now? Well, it was an active decision on my part when I came back here to the USA to be freelance. Now, I know that's not for everyone, but I'm in a slightly different situation. Uh, my wife and I don't have children. We had a home here in the Boston area that we had kept during the years when we were living in the UK. And I really wanted to do what I wanted to do, which was work for a variety of people, bounce around different properties, explore different things. And this allows me to do that. And the advantage is that, you know, one week I can... Um, indulge my passion for the Bundesliga by working in Germany, which I do quite a lot. The next week, uh, I could be fortunate enough to be asked to work for NBC Sports here in the USA covering the Premier League. And then a different week, I could be doing the EA Sports FIFA game that I'm now privileged to be part of as one of the commentators on that. So those would just be three examples. It's also allowed me, since coming back to the USA, to work the major tournaments. Now, of course, Fox Sports hold the FIFA rights nowadays, the World Cup and the Women's World Cup. So I've been on board with Fox these last two years. And that's something that I wasn't able to say during the years when I was working in the USA and had more exclusive contracts with people. So it does allow flexibility. I think you have to be prepared when you are freelance not to be necessarily the lead commentator, the number one commentator on every event, but it does give you the chance to bounce between channels because my deal, for example, with NBC is not exclusive. Similarly with Fox, when I did the World Cup and the Women's World Cup, non-exclusive. So um, that would be the big benefit. And I absolutely love it. And I think it, it suits my way of working and my personality. Uh, just for the sake of duality, Derek, what would you say are some of the greatest challenges uh, in, in this new era of your work? The challenge is that you are always planning and always thinking about how you're going to fit something in. And that sometimes <laughs> involves calling multiple people because if you commit to doing something um, in a different country, in my case, often Germany, and being away for 10 to 12 days, it could mean that you're at the same time missing out on work that could come your way uh, here stateside. So it's, um, you know, sort of juggling all the time and thinking, okay, where do I want to be? What's best for me this particular week or that particular week? Um, and, you know, sometimes you, you do miss out on, on opportunities because you are uh, in, in one place or another. But to me, that's well worth it. And as I say, it's really what I wanted to do. And of course, there are times when you, you simply want to say, no, I don't want to take on any work this week. <laughs> um, and, and, and that's that's how I operate. And uh, I, I do drive myself quite hard when I'm in Europe. I do tend to load up on events so that it could be, for example, I was in Germany uh, and England quite recently and I, I gave myself a, a pretty heavy schedule during that time. And uh, when I came home, I said, OK, when I when I come home, then I'll, I'll have a few days off. So it's um, as I say, it's not for everybody. A lot of people like the security. They like the 
the sort of the regular way of working uh, and, and having a couple of days off and then working four or five days. Uh, so this is different, but um, I'm no less passionate than uh, than I've always been. Uh, it's just uh, different in terms of the, the rhythm and the structure and the base being back here in the USA. But it was something that we spoke about and I was very keen to do, having really, in, in my opinion, felt that I'd done everything that I had I'd wanted to do uh, in the years in the UK. We're going to talk uh, quite a bit about German football in the Bundesliga, something you've already uh, alluded to. But before we go there, I want to go back to the last two summers of uh, 2019 and, and 2018, summers that will kind of just live on forever. They were very special, and you got to, to play a very special part uh, in them as a commentator. The last two World Cups and going back-to-back, uh, with the Men's World Cup in Russia and then the Women's World Cup in France. Talk about what that year span was like and maybe the juxtaposition of uh, of the two tournaments for you and what they meant. Yeah, well, I, I honestly didn't know if I was going to be able to continue my run of covering World Cups. And I've had a role in every World Cup, uh, one role or another, going all the way back to 1990. Now, in most cases, it's been as a commentator, but not every World Cup was a commentator. For example, in 1994, I was part of the organizing committee as one of the press officers for the, the World Cup organizing committee. 2002 in uh, Korea, I was one of the FIFA media officers. So I've had different roles uh, as well as being a commentator. But in recent years, it's been more as a commentator and certainly with ESPN uh, 2010 in South Africa, 2014 in Brazil. But I began to doubt whether the opportunity would come my way. And it's you know perfectly natural. I had no real affiliation with Fox. I hadn't done anything specifically for Fox. And again, the reason for that was uh, I had a, a deal with ESPN. Um, but just as we were actually embarking on a trip around Europe to end our spell in the UK in the autumn, the fall of 2017, uh, I got a call from Fox through a, a, an associate, through somebody I, I've known for a long time who I've worked with on various other projects who was part of the Fox team. And the upshot of it all was there is interest from Fox in talking to you uh, about the World Cup. And of course, naturally, I was thrilled to have that conversation. And, and we did. And it evolved over the course of a few weeks. And then the next evolution, and this didn't really happen until I'm going to say towards December or January, so January of 2018, the next evolution was that they wanted my co-commentator to be Ali Wagner. Now, I, I didn't know Ali at that time. Obviously, I knew all about her footballing accomplishments, having observed them. But uh, I was very intrigued because I'd heard her on the year before. And I have worked with many women co-commentators down the years, uh, broadcasting women's football when I was in England for BT Sport and ESPN UK. And even in the years prior to that in the USA, uh, doing quite a lot of women's football, including the uh, Women's World Cup in 1999 and again in 2003. So um, Ali and I spoke a lot and, uh, you know, we became friends and uh, did a few trial games together. And uh, it became apparent to me that we were going to we were going to get along very well on the air. And I liked her her work ethic, her approach to it. Uh, very diligent, put so much time and effort into it, wanted to know every single thing about every single player, all their traits. And we would talk a lot about that, you know, not necessarily on the phone, but by email and text. And, um, you know, we became a team. And, and that's something I've always prided myself on is, is being a, a, a team player. Um, you know, sometimes I, I feel I'm the captain of the team, sometimes depending on the personality of the person I'm working with, uh, then, you know, they can be the captain of the team. <laughs> 
in this case, I, I just felt that we, we gelled quite well. And um, uh, the, the response to it was was very positive. And we uh, we began that World Cup uh, with Morocco against Iran. That was our first game. And we went all the way to the quarterfinal, which was England against Sweden, which we did together in Russia. And um, nothing but great memories of that. And as I say, uh, I, I really enjoyed the time working uh, with Ali uh, in Russia. And after that, then I was asked, well, you know, we've got the Women's World Cup next year. Is that something that would interest you as well? And of course, I said yes, naturally, uh, in France and uh, not being new to women's football at all, although I hadn't broadcast the Women's World Cup since 2003, since those earlier editions, one for ESPN and one for the World Fee. So um, women's football is something that I've always followed, as I say, covering the the Women's League in England and previously that those Women's World Cups. So that was exciting. And uh, it was great to be able to sort of throw my lot into that. And, you know, you asked earlier about the, the freelance world. That's when being freelance can come in handy because I was able to block off a lot of time, just my own time, um, the first few months of 2019 for Women's World Cup prep. And not everybody can do that because if you've got a day job, then you try to squeeze all that in. I had you know, a few weeks where I said, OK, the next three days, I'm going to do nothing but watch women's football. I'm going to do nothing but watch games from the last year. I'm going to talk to people. And so that's how you sort of get your your um, enjoyment out of it is is by doing that sort of planning, by being ready when the tournament comes along. And my co-commentator was Danielle Slayton on, on this one. And uh, again, same sort of thing with Ali. Danielle and I began to, to talk and, uh, you know, compare notes and, and Danielle, very detail oriented, uh, great partner and uh, and wonderful memories from our time working together in, in France. And, and I should say both in Russia and in France, great production people who we had uh, working with us and, and helping us to sound as, as good as possible on the air. So, um, so yeah, it, it's it's nice to be able to work with new people. And, and that's what I have done. Uh, been able to do these last couple of years at the the biggest tournaments of them all for for men's football and women's <laughs> football. Well, you and Ali were a fantastic duo back in Russia 2018. You and Danielle, uh, much the same in France 2019. And the last thing uh, I got to ask you about that, you and Danielle were uh, quite culinarily inclined uh, during <laughs> during that tournament. I was I was enjoying the uh, trading, the constant constant trading of food picks from uh, the U.S. Mexico border all the way out to France. Uh, what was your favorite food memory uh, with with you and Danielle, or even <laughs> riding solo from France 2019, Derek? Well, I think poor Danielle was sick of some of my culinary tastes because <laughs> um, I, I'm from Scotland. And yeah, I, I, I do like fine French cuisine. I'm, I'm open about that. But in, in Scotland, we sometimes like things that are, are not necessarily uh, fine dining as well. And the one thing I introduced my production team to, uh, Danielle in, included, of course, uh, was something that exists in northwestern France. And when we were in the northwest of France, in Rennes uh, in particular, this is something that you can get anywhere. And that is the uh, galette saucisse. And a galette saucisse is basically the, the Breton hot dog. So um, I, I would always go looking either before or after the, the matches in Rennes for a galette saucisse. And there was actually one of the games, that was, would have been the last game that we did in Rennes, uh, one of the games where um, we were all 
driving off in a van and we saw this stall just outside the stadium with a, a queue of people and all serving nothing but galettes so see so i went out and i said I'm, I'm i am buying for everybody who wants one and i don't i don't think everybody wanted one but uh, <laughs> there were a couple of takers and um so that would be my memory of uh, of, of of eating in france but i i have to admit we, we were very lucky because we got to travel up and down the country from the north to the south we had a, a couple of days in nice where the cuisine is very different as I said, over in the, the west in, in, uh, in the Breton region where things are a bit different too. So, um, so yeah, we, we did really enjoy our, our travels as a group. Well, I shared a great exchange uh, with, with Danielle towards the end of the tournament, and she said that, yeah, she, she learned surprisingly as much about French cuisine uh, from, from you as, as she did about your uh, any of your football knowledge. So, uh, well, fr- cheers. Yeah, French. Yeah, fr- yeah, French French cuisine, and also if you were to ask her now, she would say she now knows a lot more about French and Euro pop generally from the 1980s <laughs> than she ever cared to know. Because um, I did insist on having that on the car radio a lot, and, and I'm sure that the first couple of times she she thought to herself, "Who is this crazy person I've been paired with on the air?" But uh, yeah, yeah, it's all about expanding horizons, isn't it? Exactly. That's what we like to do. We like to expand horizons here on the podcast and uh, everywhere else as well. Um, Derek Ray, we're wrapping back to Germany. Um, and you you alluded to the Bundesliga and German football. And I want to share a quick story with you. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I was hanging out with some folks who are big Bundesliga fans here in San Diego, members of the uh, FC Bayern supporters group. And we have to realize for for someone like myself, not everyone is intently listening to the football commentators the way that I often am. You and I have joked about that many a times, many football commentators joke about that. Not everyone is uh, tuning in for the commentator the way that Nate might be. A lot of people are just tuning in for the game itself. And uh, when you get folks who are deep fans of teams and when they pick up on the commentators and they're kind of experiencing the commentary for the first time, you can get some really interesting insights. And I'll never forget a couple of weeks ago, uh, these these two lads from the Bayern group have been watching Bayern for years and they, they were talking to me going, oh yeah, commentators, commentators, we're talking about football commentators. And they go, you know, that, that Scottish guy who does a lot of the Bundesliga games, that dude's really good. And, and you know what else I really noticed? He knows a lot about Germany. Like, wow, that guy knows a lot about Germany. Like, is is he part German? That's what they were asking. I was like, oh, you're talking about Derek Ray. You're talking about one of my mentors. You're talking about a guy I've got a world of respect for. No, he's he's actually a, a Scotsman through and through who sort of adopted Germany as a, as a second culture of his. And so transitioning this right back to the interview, uh, Derek, I, I, I want to ask you um, – what German football means to you, because it's so clear that it comes across uh, in in your commentary to people who have heard you a thousand times and people who are hearing you for the first time. They hear your love for Germany and your love for German football when you call Bundesliga games. And I'd like to uh, get some insight into where that love for German football comes from. Well, first of all, if that love does come through, then I'm very happy as a broadcaster because the love is genuine. And it goes back to my younger days. My favorite subject at school, my best subject was German. And to be honest, I thought that's probably where my career would take me. That's um, rather than being a football commentator, which was you know, my dream, uh, but you never really think you're going to get to realize your dream. I thought that my future probably would be 
uh, something linguistic, probably something in the, the field of, um, of translation or teaching, uh, and, and probably uh, as a German translator or, or teacher. So I, I really did have this sort of German obsession from a very young age, and it goes all the way back to the 1974 World Cup, which is the first major tournament that I watched on TV. And that's, I think, when I first discovered the magic, and it wasn't long after that that German happened to be the language that we learned uh, in my class at school in Scotland, at primary school, and continued that into secondary school, and then at university. Now, uh, my German teacher, who was... Um, very important to me in terms of you know my my interest in the language at that time a guy called Brian Steele in Aberdeen sadly no longer with us um, he had a contact with uh, a teacher in a very small village which happened to be right on the border of the two Germanys as was the case at the time east and west on the western side but when I say right on the border I mean you know a couple of hundred yards from the border so in other words from the the living room, you could see the, the East German border guards on the other side looking over to the west with their binoculars. So it was a, a, a this sort of fusion of, of um, you know, mystery of international espionage of, um, you know, a, a real joy in in German. And, and that certainly was at the heart of it. I mean, when, when I would spend time in, in Germany and I did go to this this uh, this area of Germany and and got to know it much better, uh, you know, I would I'd begin to dream in German. And they always say once you dream in a language, then you you're sort of making quite a lot of progress in, in terms of uh, having that language as part of you. But football was always part of it as well. And when I went there as a student, I would make sure I, I would go to games. And the first games I went to were second division games. The, the closest team, a team called Hessen Kassel back in the 1980s, who were pushing very strongly for promotion, never quite made it. But I fell in love with them early on. Uh, I also sort of had a thing for um, for Kern, um, who were one of the better teams in Germany at that time. And they had players like Pierre Lidbarski, Thomas Hessler, uh, Tony Schumacher, the great goalkeeper. Uh, people like that. And um, even though we weren't close to, to Kern, that was always sort of at the back of my head that there was something magical about Kern. So um, this continued right, right the way through my life. And I got into broadcasting and international football broadcasting uh, and, and always, you know, used my German whenever it was advantageous, as it could be sometimes in those days calling FIFA or UEFA, because it wasn't necessarily a given that you would call up and get somebody talking English when you wanted to have something clarified. So I would always use my German and there were times when it would come in handy, but never really on the, the broadcasting side unless uh, a Scottish team was playing a, a German team. And I was lucky enough to, to cover a few of them in the, the late 80s, early 90s and the early years of my, my broadcasting. And then again, when I was in the USA with the Champions League, when it would be a Bayern game, my eyes would light up because then I, I genuinely felt I could give something a little bit extra. And for me, the, the football is all part of this German cultural thing that's 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 with me. Um, and I do try to, to do that. And if it comes over on the air, I'm, I'm, I'm delighted, as I said, because to me, part of my job as a as a world feed commentator, as I am now when I'm working for the Bundesliga, and that's directly for the league itself. Part of the job is to be to educate people around the world not just about the football, not just about the teams, that's very important too, but about Germany itself. Because it's funny, I sat down with a, a young student who was looking for some advice recently, and uh, he was very interested in, in German football, knew a lot about it. But one of the questions that he had for me was, what's Germany like? You know, just, just tell me about Germany. How is it different 
in comparison with the US, for example. And you know, it's when you listen to people like that, you realize that you know, most people don't have that advantage that I have. You know, I've spent um, big chunks of my life working at these places, at these uh, grounds, and walking through these cities and talking to people and you know, having friends and contacts in these cities. And um, I, I do believe that knowing a language allows you to take it to another level, that you know what the, the currency of conversation is on a daily basis in Germany in a way that somebody who doesn't know the language can't possibly provide. You know, so, so that's where it kind of comes from with me. And as I say, it's only really in recent years since I moved to the UK. That's when Bundesliga rights were with ESPN UK and then with BT Sport, where I worked. And, you know, I obviously said to them, you know, if, if there's a chance, I'd love to do as much Bundesliga as possible in addition to my other duties. And they were very good to, to give me that. And then the Bundesliga World Feed people, um, you know, got wind of the fact that I was interested in working for them. And they're a great group of people, by the way. They, they are, you know, really some of my favorites of all the people I've ever worked with. And I'm talking about fellow commentators and producers. And it's just a true team effort. And, you know, we share the, uh, the workloads and um, no one person gets all the top matches. It's, it's a really nice mix. So I, I love going to Germany as, as often as possible. So that's a long-winded answer about my, <laughs> my love of, of, uh, of all things German and, and, and all things German football-wise. But it's a relationship that I hope we can we can continue for for a long time. Well, we're not done talking German football yet. You know, if you're on a show with me, we're going to get a little nostalgic. We're uh, we're going down <laughs> memory lane. Um, yeah. You talked about this. You talked about the 74 World Cup. You talked about those matches that influenced you where you kind of cut your teeth with German football during your formidable years. Looking more into the modern era and into your career uh, as a broadcaster all the way to right now. Um what are some of your favorite German football memories, Derek? Well, the one that absolutely stands out actually was only a couple of years ago. So it was, again, it was not long back in the USA. And I went back to Germany to do a, a, a block of matches. And one of them was my favorite derby. And I've been lucky enough to cover this fixture several times now, uh, either from Dortmund or from Gelsenkirchen. I'm talking about the Revier Derby, as it's known, the, the big derby in the Ruhr region, the industrial part of Germany, Borussia Dortmund against Schalke 04. And so I went to Dortmund for this game, and I was working with the great Stefan Freund, my co-commentator. And this was one of those games that really, you and I have spoken about the the madness and the greatness of the 2005 Champions League final in Istanbul that I <laughs> was lucky enough to, to commentate on. And I, I always said, there'll never be a major final quite like that. Well, I, I wasn't sure there would ever be a, a game quite like that. This is the closest that I've really had that, that rivals that one. And I say that because it was 4-0 to Borussia Dortmund at half time and absolutely running away with it. And the final score was 4-4. Uh, Schalke came back from 4-0 down at the home of Dortmund at the Zignari Duna Park. And uh, with just about the last touch of the game ahead of Bainaldo, they, um, they made it 4-4. And to be able to broadcast that to a world audience and to have it all there in front of me in Dortmund that day, uh, you know, that, that it, it would be difficult for, for me to, to say that that wouldn't be my, my favorite memory. I have another one actually from last season, and it was one of the worst games that I've ever commentated on, but the story was just amazing. And that was, and again, this ties into my interest in East Germany in particular. 
that was the um, the night when Union from Berlin, uh, FC Union, Eisen Union, as the, the fans call the team, um, made it to the Bundesliga for the very first time. And they did it against all the odds, against Stuttgart. I'd covered the first leg in Stuttgart um, when it was 2-2, and away goals did count. So they went back to the wonderful stadium, which is a throwback to, to many decades ago, the Stadion an der Alten Försterei in Köpenick on the eastern side of, of Berlin, southeast Berlin. And um, it finished nil-nil. It was scrappy, scruffy. Choose your adjective. There was nothing positive about the game. <laughs> but the celebration was the like of which I have never seen. Uh, pitch invasion en masse. It lasted. It seemed as though it lasted for hours. And um, so we, Stefan and I commentated on this pitch invasion. And uh, what you have to remember is that this was the team of the trade union movement in the former East Germany, where there was quite a lot of dissent. Uh, and a lot of people who were dissenters were quite attracted to Union. They were not part of the establishment. You know, the, the uh, establishment, the, the Stasi team in, in East German days were uh, Dynamo, who, who won everything. And a lot of the, the, the reason for that was because it was fixed, because they got the best players and it was, it was taken care of that they would win most things latterly. In the, uh, in the former East Germany. Union didn't win very much at all, um, apart from one uh, memorable cup in, the, uh, in, in 1968, the uh, cup final. Uh, but really for them to, to then suddenly have made it to the Bundesliga, just to me was one of the most romantic stories I'd ever covered. So we've got two in the last couple of years and, and who's to say what comes next? But um, uh, you know, if I go all the way back, you know, the, the, the first memory really, the first sort of memory as a student was another one that um, that still stays with me. And and that was when I was staying with with a family right on the, the border, as I said, in, in Wildeck-Hönebach, which is, uh, if you know your geography, is, I say, not far from Kassel, a bit closer to Bad Hersfeld and Debra, uh, but nowadays on the border between Hessen and Thüringen, and Thüringen would be the eastern side. Um, uh, Bayern and Gladbach, in the final of the German Cup. And it was the last of the German Cup finals before they went to Berlin on a permanent basis. Uh, so this was at the old uh, Waldstadion in Frankfurt. And, and I had actually gone to my first, uh, I'm sorry, I was to go to my first game at that stadium, first Bundesliga game, not long after that, the first top flight game, which was Frankfurt against Bayer Uerdingen. But this one uh, featured the great Lothar Matthäus, who was in his last game as a Gladbach player before joining Bayern. And uh, it went to penalties and unfortunately didn't work out for, for Mr. Matthäus in, in that penalty shootout. But um, just something that will, will always stay with me. And, and when I think of German Cup finals, and it's one of my favourite days on the calendar, the, the, uh, the DFB Pokal Finale, as they say, the, the German Cup final. Um, I always go back to, to that one in the, the mid-80s when it really all started for me as a viewer. You're talking geography, you're talking culture, language, food, football romanticism, and, and the intersections, and the intersections of, of all of those things, and, and how they all tie together uh, to, to your love for the beautiful game, and, and your love for, for what you do as, as a football commentator, and that's one more thing I, I, I want to ask you about, and bouncing off some of our personal conversations that we've had over the years, 
what what does it mean to make sure? How important is it for you to make sure that all of those things that I just mentioned, geography, culture, language, food, football, romanticism, that they stay intertwined and that soccer, football, whatever you want to call it, doesn't become this sort of separate entity, that, that it, it stays intertwined as, as a part of life. Uh, what, is, what does that mean to you and how important is that to, to make sure that that comes through your work? Well, to me, it's paramount. What I always try to bring across, because I've been lucky enough to be at most of these venues where I commentate from as a fan. And it's a different experience as a fan, uh, because when you're commentating, you're, you're thinking about getting everything right. And you're not in the same frame of mind as you are when you're a fan. So I deliberately take days where I just go to a game as a fan and I experience the whole day that way. So, you know, if I'm going to a game in, let's say, in Cologne, in Kern, uh, then, you know, I'll, I'll make sure that I, you know, a couple of hours before the game, jump on the local train with the fans and listen to conversations <laughs> and get off, you know, a couple of stops before and go and sit down with everybody's having a beer and a bratwurst and just listen and imbibe. And, uh, you know, I, I firmly believe that, and some people say to me, oh, why do you talk, why did you talk on the air about, you know, about the shuttle buses that take the, the fans. to the, Nobody's interested in that. I'll say, well, it's all about painting a picture and we all do it our own way. And you don't want to bore people with anything. But at the same time, if you have a bit of knowledge that you can share that can bring it home to somebody, then I think you should share it. And, and this is why I always say to young commentators, you know, do it your own way. There's a structure that you have to use in order to to be a good commentator. Of that, there is absolutely no doubt. But put your own stamp on something. And if you have a particular interest in a, in a certain area, if you have knowledge, then then use that to good effect. Again, without overdoing it. And that's always the, the trick. Don't overdo anything on TV. But right place, right time. And uh, yeah, I'll, I'll never tire of doing that. And, it, and it's part of why I really enjoy covering the major tournaments. When we were in France during the Women's World Cup, you know, I made sure that I knew everything and then some uh, in terms of what I needed to do to, to, to know, not just about the stadium that I was working from, but about the city, about the surrounding area, about, as you've referenced earlier, the cuisine, the wine, you know, you, you name it. Um, all that stuff is important. And there's always somebody who's who's watching and listening who who will enjoy that, who will say, you know what, you, you, you come at it from a slightly different perspective. You told me something that I didn't know. Uh, and I appreciate that. So, you know, football, if you think about football, people, yes, they go to football to watch a game, but it is also a cultural uh, experience and a social experience. You know, you're sharing it with other people. And that's really what I try to do when I'm on the air. And going back to culture and language, uh, the the components that, that those are of of everything that that you just talked about right there, it's much more than than just German uh, football for you. It's it's every football match that I've ever heard you commentate for every year that I've ever known of your existence as a commentator. One of the first things as a kid, and one of the things I look up to you regarding now is your pronunciation of names, and it's it's a relentless effort to get every last name 100% correct. And speaking as someone with a name that has been butchered for my entire life, and I've been Nate Abariu, I've been Nate Abaria, I've been Nate Abarera, and God knows what else in 
in my young life. And that's as a commentator, that's in my career, that's as a little kid in school and so on and so forth. So that's why a commentator like yourself and, and your relentless effort, your relentless effort to make sure that no name is ever mispronounced and no cultural nuance is ever overlooked. Um, and I think there's a lot of people who feel that way. And, and I want to ask you about that right now in regards to Latino names, in regards to German names, in regards to African names, wherever the name uh, may come from. Talk about how important that is for you to, to have proper pronunciation and what pronunciation means when it comes to names of human beings. Well, it's something, as you said, that I place a heavy importance on, and that's just the way I, I feel about it, probably influenced by my language's background and wanting to get it right. And uh, it first struck me when I was you know, a very keen German student, it struck me that listening to a lot of commentators in the UK, who I respected greatly, uh, that they weren't getting the German names right at all. You know, they were, they were miles off. And I was thinking, what, well, why is that you know, so hard. why don't they why don't they talk to somebody? Why don't they, they have a contact, a German contact who can put them right? I'm talking here about, you know, fairly basic, uh, you know, German names of the time uh, that were being mispronounced. So um, I, I've always taken it as a goal going into an event that I want. If, if there's somebody who is watching, listening um, from a particular country and uh, I am pronouncing a name from that country. I want that person to go, oh, that commentator's actually got the name right for a change, you know, because, you know, listen, it's not always easy and it's not always highest on people's priority list. You're checking so many different things and a lot of people, um, you know, won't necessarily go the extra mile with that. And, you know, it's also very easy just to go along with what everybody else has said. I find that a particular problem in the UK, I must say. Mm -hmm. um, what what usually happens is, and I used to get involved in a lot of discussions with people about this, what usually happens is um, people will cluster together and the question will be asked, well, what are we calling him? And I used to always say, well, should the question not be, what is his name? You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not up to us to impose a name on somebody just because that happens to be easy. Now, I will admit that there are times when players don't make it easy at all. They don't make it easy one bit. I'll give you an example. Um, Borussia Dortmund's Norwegian sensation who has just joined the club. Now, I, I know because I did his name for FIFA three years ago and I checked with Norwegian sources. His name in Norway is Erling Haaland. Erling Haaland. Now, um, he gave an interview very recently where he said, yes, that is my name. But um, he said, but we're not in Norway anymore. And um, I actually quite like the way Haaland sounds. And I'm used to it. <laughs> so that is a nightmare for a commentator because we're trying to do it the right way. And then somebody will say, a, a viewer or a listener will say, you're saying it the wrong way. Uh, the one where that I hear most, where I get most feedback um, uh, and it's actually been in the last few weeks since he joined Manchester United, is a player who I did for the FIFA game a couple of years ago. And again, in Portugal, um, it's Bruno Fernandes. Bruno Fernandes. Bruno Fernandes. Actually, I think it sounds quite good that way. Bruno Fernandes. It really does. Uh, yeah. But um, <laughs> try, try getting people in England to agree to that. You know, <laughs> not going to happen. And so, um, you know, he, he has become Bruno Fernandes in England. But... My attitude is, and I've been encouraged by the people I work with at, at EA Sports um, on this one, my attitude is this game is going around the world. If his family, members of his family are playing the game, 
they want to hear it said the way they say it. They don't want a, an imposed pronunciation. And I remember um, it really hit home with me when there was a player in Scotland, when I was working in Scotland, there was a player who had uh, who had bounced around the scene in England and Scotland for a, for a while. And he was French, but he was um, of Moroccan heritage. And I'd only ever heard him called Farid El Alagui. A-L-A-G-U-I. El Alagui, they were saying. So I introduced myself to him one night and I said, could you just confirm your, the pronunciation of your name? I, I said, I hear everybody saying El Alagui. He said, he said, no, El Alagui. And I said, well, that's what I thought it would have been because of your French. He goes, yeah, El, El Alagui. And I said, well, I'm going to say that on the air tonight. He said, thank you so much. He goes, my father's watching and he will be thrilled. And the next week I saw, or maybe not the next week, but the next time I saw him, uh, we chatted again. And he said, thank you so much. He goes, that, that really meant a lot. So it actually can get you into trouble with viewers because the number of times, and you might think this is crazy, Nate, but the number of times I get tweets from people on social media, you need, how, you need to learn how to pronounce the names. <laughs> <laughs> And I don't really know how to reply to that because you know me and, you know, that is one thing that I, I probably put more time into than it, than, than certainly most other commentators. Um, but uh, it can come back to bite you if you say a name in a way that is different uh, than the quote unquote accepted way, which, you know, is not always wrong, but can be wrong. Well, that uh, that Alagi story uh, definitely hits home uh, for me. I've I've heard similar stories here in in the cross border community in San Diego and Tijuana. Um, it's it's something I've I've heard other examples of similar stories uh, uh, many many times and. We've we've kept this pretty mild mannered. We've we've kept a pretty mild mannered interview. So without getting us too riled up here, I I feel like I have to ask you. You you almost went there. You talked about people saying, "Hey, you need to learn how to pronounce the names." Uh, what goes through your mind, Derek Ray, when you hear something that I've heard many a times that our friend Maximiliano Bretos uh, has heard many a times, a good friend of the show, many other commentators who are so deeply invested in proper pronunciation. Um, what goes through your mind when you hear someone say, could you try to not overpronounce the names of the players? I know you've heard that one before. What yep. goes through your mind when you hear that? Um, what goes through my mind is that, um, <laughs> first of all, you get quite annoyed when you hear that because uh, the, the first question I have for somebody who says that is, okay, do you speak German, for example. Somebody's saying I'm overpronouncing a German name. Do you speak German? No. Okay, so who are you to tell me I'm overpronouncing something when I speak that language and you don't? That's the first thing that goes through my mind. And um, I don't think that we should be underpronouncing names. Put it that way. I think that if we can pronounce names correctly, we should pronounce them correctly. I also recognize that not everybody has linguistic ability. So I get that. But I don't think that Anybody should say to somebody who happens to, to have a, uh, an authentic pronunciation of a name, you are overpronouncing that name. You know, for example, German's a complex language. And, you know, the U sound and the H sound and, you know, the German R, a lot of these sounds, some people just can't make. I, I get that, you know. I'm lucky enough that I studied the language when I was young. And through studying that and also because I'm Scottish and actually we're quite lucky as Scots because we can make a lot of guttural sounds that most other <laughs> people can. And, 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 and I always say to fellow Scots, 
you guys actually really should be quite good at languages because you can make these sounds, you know? Most people can't make the sound. Uh, it's just it's just impossible for, you know, try getting an English person to say that. It's it's almost impossible. Same for a lot of Americans. They just can't make that sound. It's it's, it's not, it's nobody's fault. It's, but, you know, there are some sounds that we can make and, and we, we grow up making them. So it's, um, yeah, I, I think, as I said earlier, be yourself and play to your own strengths. And if languages happen to be one of your strengths, then use that to your advantage. And um, as I say, I, I always get a little bit, my heart sinks when I hear fellow commentators saying things like, well, yeah, okay, I know that. I know that that's not the way he, he says it, but I'm just going to go with the majority. I'll say, well, well, why? You know, wh why not try and, try and be right? And, you know, listen, there are times when we get led up the garden path and clubs can often be the great enemy on this one too, because they will put out a pronunciation that is wrong and they'll, they'll put it out just because they think that you know people are not going to be able to say it correctly, so the the sort of the halfway house pronunciation um, gets put out. I mean, Ar you know, Arsenal had a goalkeeper in England for a long time um, who, whose name, for some reason, got um, got interpreted as Chesney, you know, and and his name is Chesney. You know, there's there's a there's a two sounds at the, at the the first couple of syllables, and then there's an N in there, a soft N in Polish, but um, you know. I, I've said that on the air and, and you know, I've had, I've had pushback from people saying, oh, you're getting his name wrong. You need to learn how to pronounce his name. Listen, after a while, it's a bit like water off a duck's back. You realize that there are people who are just always going to say that. And if they want to believe you're mispronouncing the name, well, I sometimes come back with them uh, with, the, with, with this line, uh, it, it, with, with the following line is, um, uh, you really think that I, I I would say it that way if I hadn't checked it or if i didn't know that's how you pronounce it you know so it's um it's frustrating but unfortunately it's you know you you make a stand in this life and uh you either on pronunciations you either make a stand that you're going to go the whole hog and do it right or you you don't and I, I listen i respect that a lot of people feel that they shouldn't that they they ought to approximate and they ought to say something that's that's understandable to most people but i just have to feel in line with my my penchant for um, for cultural experiences during games that as far as possible, I, 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 well, not as far as possible, full stop, I want to get it right. Well, I think uh, I speak for quite a few people, but I just want to speak uh, at the very least for yours truly, Nate Abaurea, when I say thank you uh, for your uh, unwavering effort uh, in these regards. And thank you for weaving uh, anger, humor, and education in uh, to that last answer. And we are going to end uh, on a very positive note. Um, the, the terminology, uh, something that, that you and I have, have talked about for, for so long ad nauseum, it's it's two of my favorite words uh, in in the English language, and that is football romanticism, the concept of of football romanticism and romanticismo de fútbol in español. However you want to go about it. Yeah. Um, first off, I want to know how to say football romanticism in German, and then I would like to close out uh, this episode of the Heart of the Game. I would like to hear. Derek Ray's definition, his own personal definition of football romanticism and, and what it is. Um, well, let me deal with that one first of all. Football romanticism to me is many different things, actually. And it, it doesn't necessarily have to do with the highest level of football either. To me, romanticism could be watching a game in Scotland by the North Sea, right on the North Sea, 
with the waves howling and the wind audible as well. I say only a few hundred people watching and um, everybody getting the thrill of watching their local team and just taking in the scene. And, and that, to me, can be as romantic as, as just about anything. It's the one thing when I worked in Scotland, I used to do a lot. I, I used to go to games at small grounds, uh, you know, small places um, when, I, when I wasn't working during the, the week. And I just wanted to take in the scene. And I actually got more romantic joy, if you like, out of these smaller grounds than I would at a big stadium. Now, don't get me wrong. I love going to, to big games as well. Um, but, uh, you know, that's where I get my pleasure. And I still do that in Germany. You know, when I go to, to, to Germany and cover a big game, I make sure that I have time to go and see a smaller game too. So I'll often, you'll often find me at third division games, at uh, Regionalliga games, which is, um, you know, the, the, the fourth division with, with a regional structure. And um, that's what I find to be the, um, uh, you know, the, the, you know the, 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 the heartbeat of, of the game. So, so from that angle, um, romanticism in, in German, well, you're talking basically about Fußball Romantique. It's quite simple, really. It's, um, but yeah, the concept of Fußball Romantique is, um, is, is everywhere. It's, it's in Germany, it's in the Latin countries, it's in the UK, it's in the USA. I mean, that's the thing about the USA. It's got a rich soccer, football, call it what you will, history as well which I first discovered when I, when I came to Boston, going all the way back to the 1860s and on Ida United. And, uh, you know, that, that's something I would like to do a lot more in this country is go to smaller uh, scale games. Uh, and we have a number of smaller local teams in our area here in Boston. I just never can find the time um, to, to, to go and watch them because I'm traveling too much. But, uh, but someday when things slow down a bit more, then, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll take care of that. Well, here's to football romanticism. Here's to you, Derek Ray. And I'm going to let you go now because I'm, I'm sure you've, you've got a plane to catch uh, in, in a few minutes or a few hours. <laughs> For once, actually, no. For once, I'm, I'm at home and staying at home. <laughs> so we, we chose a good day to chat. Well, enjoy uh, the rest of your stay in the uh, beautiful Boston area. This has been an immense pleasure and privilege. And you're welcome back anytime, sir. Anytime. Thanks, Nate. does it for episode two of the heart of the game another huge thanks to Derek Ray for joining us be sure to follow Derek on Twitter at Raycom and follow yours truly at Nate Abarea and of course be sure to follow at World Soccer Talk from the cross-border community of San Diego California and Tijuana Baja California Mexico this is Nate Abarea saying hasta la próxima bye for now Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. 
Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.